Would you uh, please open your Bible to Judges chapter uh, 6? Actually, why don't you turn to Judges 2? We're going to make our way to Judges 6 this morning, but um, Judges chapter 2, we'll start there. And uh, it is good for us to be together in God's Word today. Uh, So Judges in the Old Testament, that's where we are this morning. Let's begin here. Um, Anybody afraid of the dark? Just by a show of hands, anybody? Okay, a couple of us. Anybody... um, Anybody uh, afraid of what is uh, technically referred to as electorophobia? Anybody know what that is? It's a fear of chickens. <laughs> Anybody afraid of chickens? Some people, okay, so you're the ones who will not be going to Swiss Chalet after church. Um, anybody with me and you're afraid of clowns? Like you have this irrational, unexplainable fear of clowns. I don't know what it is. Like if it's the big hair, the bright nose, the floppy shoes, maybe it's all three together. But like Ronald McDonald gives me nightmares. So um, today in our passage, uh, we're about to meet a man who at this particular point in his life is filled with fear. He's filled with fear and yet God somehow is able to use him uh, so that he is courageous and he does great things for the Lord. Last time in our series, we were in Exodus chapter 20, where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and the people. After Moses dies, God calls Joshua to pick up the mantle from Moses, and God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous. The Lord will be with him just as he was with Moses. Joshua then prepares to lead God's people into the Promised Land. Along the way, the people miraculously crossed the Jordan River in much the same way that Moses led the people across the Red Sea, and they fight a series of battles where it becomes very clear that God is the one who fights for his people. In fact, God even performs a miracle of making the sun stand still for a time to give the Israelites time to defeat their enemies, who, by the way, were much bigger and much stronger than they were, and the Israelites had no business defeating any of them, also that everyone around them would know that God is the one who has not forgotten his people. And that's when Joshua leads the people of God into the land that God has promised them. And all of these hundreds of years later, in Joshua 21, God has shown himself now to be faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. In fact, after all the battles have been fought and the people have followed the Lord, listen to what the Bible says in Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45. It says this, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And then listen to this. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now just listen to that and let that sink in and let that wash over your soul. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So for whatever circumstance that you're going through right now and whatever it is that you brought uh, to church with you this morning and for the difficulty that you're experiencing and the hardship that you're enduring, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to his children will fail. All will come to pass. Shortly after this, the Bible tells us that Joshua dies at the age of 110 and Joshua 24 verse 31 uh, then says this, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known 
all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So this legacy of faith is being multiplied and people could see the good things that the Lord had been doing and they were committing to follow the Lord from this day forward, which then makes our introduction to the book of Judges all that much more shocking. Chapter 1 in Judges is a series of compromises that the people make that shows that they have not totally rejected God, but at the same time, they have not totally accepted him either. That's bad all by itself. But then we get to chapter 2, and now it gets even worse. So notice chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord." And it's at that point that Joshua dies. Skip down now to chapter 2, verse 10, which says this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So notice the pattern here. One generation knows the Lord, but they don't pass that knowledge on to the next generation. And where does that lead? Look at verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals in the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And this now begins a pattern that repeats itself all the way through the book of Judges. We see this pattern over and over again. It starts with rebellion. So the people disobey God and they turn away from his ways. In fact, that one phrase in chapter 2, verse 11, is repeated many times through the book. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Every single cycle starts with that phrase. So it starts with rebellion, which is followed then by retribution. This is where the people are disciplined by God for their disobedience. They fall into the hands of the enemy nations around them. That then is followed by repentance. The people cry out to God and acknowledge their departure from God and their need to be delivered, at which point God graciously raises up a judge who rescues them. The judge delivers them from their oppression and God gives them a time of extended peace. And so this is the cycle that we see repeat itself through the book of Judges. Now jump down to chapter 3 and verse 7. and We see this whole pattern begin to unfold for the first time. Judges 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So there's that phrase at the very beginning. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So that's the rebellion. Verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim eight years. So that's the retribution. Okay, The discipline from God for their disobedience. Verse 9. 
But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, so there's part number three in this pattern, it's repentance, verse 9, the Lord raised up a deliverer from the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. So the land had rest 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So there, in those few verses, we see this entire pattern play itself out. Rebellion, retribution, repentance, and then God raises up Othniel to rescue them, and they enjoy peace for 40 years. But then we get to chapter 3 and verse 12, and notice what it says next. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So there's that phrase again, and this whole pattern is about to repeat itself yet again. This time, a king named Eglon forms an enemy coalition against Israel, and they oppressed Israel for 18 years. Notice verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, you read through this story, and this guy, Ehud, sounds kind of like a sneaky little man, and he's about to go all Chuck Norris on King Eglon. So look at, look at verse 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now, how about that? Right? Like your only appearance in the entire Bible, and that is all that people are going to remember you by. In fact, uh, the only reason they're going to remember you by that is because of what happens next. Look at verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed after the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. I have no idea why God felt it necessary for us to know that last part there, but there it is. Verse 23, then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Like, can you imagine being part of that conversation outside the bathroom door of your boss? It's like, you go in. No, you go in. No, you, no you're holding the Febreze, you go in. Like, verse 25, and they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. Down to verse 28. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Verse 30. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Now, don't you just love the transparency of the Old Testament? I mean, we've come across some kind of crazy stories in our series to this point so far, but for me, this one is like right at the very top of the list. But here it is again, laid bare right in front of us, this pattern that the people go through. Rebellion followed by retribution, so God disciplines them for turning away from him, then repentance, and then God rescues them. And you would hope by this time that the Israelites have caught on and they're seeing that this problem keeps repeating itself, and then we get to chapter 4 and verse 1. 
And it says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So there's that phrase again. So God raises up Deborah and Barak to rescue the people in another dramatic story of deliverance, which brings us now to chapter 6. And so by this point, it should not surprise us to see how the story of Gideon begins in chapter 6 and verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's the phrase again. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So this Midianite army is so big and so strong that Israel could not stand up to them even if they wanted to. Verse 5 says that their army would come upon them like locusts. In other words, as Israel looked out across the hillside in front of them, the entire landscape was covered with this Midianite army. I mean, they were absolutely huge. But for Israel, it wasn't just their size and their strength. It was also their strategy. Verses 2 and 3 says that they had been attacking the Israelites at the same time of the year for seven straight years, and they had become so oppressive that Israel started to dig caves in the sides of the mountains just to hide from them when they came. And every time they would come just in time to steal all the crops that the farmers had planted and steal all their livestock so that by the time the whole charade was over, Israel was left with absolutely nothing. So just imagine that. Try and put yourself in that circumstance right now. Every year, for seven straight years, it was the same old, same old. The Midianites would attack Israel and destroy their livelihood, and in the process, they left Israel with no food, no livestock, no money, and no future. In fact, all they left for Israel was this lingering fear that they were going to come back next year at the very same time and do the very same thing. And so when you put Gideon back into that context, perhaps it helps us understand a little bit better why he interacted with God in some of the ways that he did. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, so they realized their rebellion, they have faced God's retribution, now they're crying out to the Lord in repentance. Verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So notice here that there's a little bit of a pause in this cycle because instead of instantly sending a judge to rescue them, God sends a prophet to preach to them. And the prophet says to them, you need to understand why you're in this predicament. You're going through this suffering right now because you've turned away from God. You're going through this difficulty right now because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. So let's be clear here. That's not always the reason that God brings suffering and trials into our lives, but sometimes it is. As one author has said it, sometimes God sends us into suffering not to pay us back, but to bring us back. And so when the prophet is done preaching, we're finally introduced to Gideon, verse 11. 
Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So don't miss that detail because that's pretty important. Gideon is beating out wheat in a winepress. From what I understand, when, when you thresh wheat, you throw it up into the air and the wind catches all the light parts and blows them all away, and then the parts that you want to keep just fall back down to the ground. But Gideon now is in a wine press. And a wine press is indoors and it's underground. So in some sense, it doesn't really matter how high you throw the wheat in the air. There is no wind that will catch it and blow away the parts that you don't want. So why is it that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press? He's doing that because he is so afraid. He is just filled. He is consumed with fear in his life because of a circumstance in his life that he can't control. He's so afraid of this big and overwhelming army of the Midianites who should be marching over the hillside at any moment now. Like he is just quaking. He is filled with fear like so many of the people around him. So keep that in mind now as we read verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And we're like, what? That doesn't make sense. Like Gideon is quaking with fear, and this angel comes and says, God is with you, O mighty man of courage, O mighty man of strength, O mighty man of bravery. And the dude's hiding in the side of a cave. Verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. So from there, Gideon prepares this enormous and elaborate sacrifice, which the angel of the Lord totally consumes by springing up fire from a rock. And then Gideon realizes that this being before him was an angel sent by God. Down to verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, said to Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So needless to say, that did not go over well with everyone else in the town. And when they had finally put it together, they realized that it was Gideon who did this. And so they start knocking on Gideon's dad's door because they want to hang Gideon in the town square. And his dad covers for him and says, let your false god defend himself. And that seems to be the end of that. But that then brings Gideon back to this call that God had given him to save Israel from Midian. So look at verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. 
He sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. He sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me, just, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So when you go on now and you read into chapter 7 and into chapter 8, you find that everything happens just as God said that it would. Unfortunately, Gideon's leadership and his life does not come to a strong end, at least not as strong as his call at the beginning. And God uses Gideon nonetheless to rescue Israel and take down the Midianite army in a very convincing victory. Now when you think about this, this is a very compelling testimony from Gideon's life. Because this testimony from Gideon's life exposes the fear that is in our own hearts. And it makes us ask ourselves, how could I possibly be used by God when I feel so afraid of what I think God is asking me to do? I mean, we read this account of Gideon in Judges chapter 6, and and on some level, we not only identify with part of this, but we also want to exemplify the best of this. I mean, we read this and we can certainly identify with Gideon's fear. We look at our lives and and we're hiding from some things that, like he was hiding from some things. We're hiding from some things in a wine press over here and, and we're avoiding some other things with excuses over there that we're not big enough or we're not smart enough or we're not able enough. And, and sometimes the fear is so overwhelming that it paralyzes us to the point where we end up doing absolutely nothing. So we can certainly identify with part of this but isn't there another part of us that longs to exemplify the best of this? Like, haven't you been at that point in your life where you're reading that Bible verse again and and you've read it like dozens of times before, but for whatever reason that you don't know and you can't explain in the moment, you're reading it and it's almost like you're reading it again for the very first time. It's like it's just jumping off the page at you. And, and you're spending that time alone with the Lord in prayer. And, and you can just sense that God is so close to you in that moment. And, and maybe you're processing the call from God to obey him, to do something in your life that he is leading you, he's calling you to do. And more than anything, in those moments, you just want to cry out to God and say, God, I want you to matter more to me. Like, I want you to matter more to me than my fear matters to me right now. Leads us to ask God, like, how am I supposed to be courageous when I feel so cowardly? I think that's one of the reasons the story of Gideon matters so much. So let's look at this together. I want to leave us this morning with three simple exhortations that move us from all-consuming fear to all-encompassing faith. So three simple exhortations that move us from all-consuming fear to all-encompassing faith. Here's the first. Number one. We must recognize our desperation for God's power. We must recognize our desperation for God's power. God will bring us to moments of unmistakable weakness, just like he will for Gideon later in chapter 7 and into chapter 8, when all of our human confidence is completely stripped away, just so we can sit in amazement of the power that he works on our behalf. 
I think that's partly why God sends the prophet first so the people don't forget who God is and what God has already done for them and what God can still do for them in the circumstance that they're in right now. I mean, sometimes it's so easy for us to read these Old Testament stories and and think that it's just some story from thousands of years ago that doesn't really have an impact on the way I live my life today. But we need to understand that this is our God too. Like the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and now Gideon, this is our God as well. Like sometimes it's so easy for us even to separate ourselves from what God has done in the course of church history, even as recently as 150 years ago. I'm reading a biography of D.L. Moody right now called A Passion for Souls. Fantastic book. I highly recommend it. One weekend in 1872, Moody was asked to preach at a church during one of his trips through England. He was reluctant at first, but eventually he agreed to go and preach. And he preached in the morning service, and he said as he did, it was unlike anything that he had ever experienced before. He said the spiritual atmosphere in the church seemed cold and dead, and most everyone in attendance seemed indifferent to his words. He looked out, and it's like people's eyes were glazed over, and there was no visible responses on their faces, and they were just completely indifferent. And Moody said he tried to preach, but even as the words would come out of his mouth, he felt like it was all in vain. And the, the part that frightened Moody the most was that he had already agreed to come back that night and preach the evening service in the same church as well. He had no idea what to expect. But there happened to be two sisters in that church, one of whom was at the morning service and the other was at home. And she was at home because she had a physical malady that made it impossible for her to go to church. So because she couldn't go to church, she spent almost all of her time at home praying that God would bring life and revive this church that was cold and dead. So months before that, she had read in a newspaper about some of the prayer meetings that were happening in America led by this man named D.L. Moody. And, and so she instantly cut out those articles from the newspaper. She hung on to them. And then she started to pray that God would send this man to her church. So imagine how, how surprised she was when her sister came home from church that morning and told her that their guest preacher was Mr. Moody from America. As the story goes, upon hearing the news, the woman instantly turned pale. She looked at her sister and she said to her, if I had known that he was going to preach this morning, I would not have eaten breakfast. I would have spent the whole time in prayer. She looked at her sister and she said, now sister, go out of the room, lock the door, send me no dinner. No matter who comes, do not let them in to come and see me. I am going to spend the whole afternoon and the entire evening in prayer. And so that's exactly what she did. Now, not knowing that any of this was going on, Moody very reluctantly stood up in that church to preach that night. But when he did, he faced the same crowded congregation and noticed that a new atmosphere had filled the place. Many years later, in talking to his son about that very night, Moody said that when he preached to that same congregation on that same Sunday in the same New Court Congregational Church, Moody said, at half past six in the evening, it seemed while preaching, the atmosphere was charged with the Spirit of God. There came a hush upon all the people and a quick response to his words. The power of an unseen world, Moody said, seemed to have fallen upon the audience. Moody had never experienced anything like this before, so at the end of his sermon that night, Moody simply said, if there is a man or a woman here who tonight will accept Jesus Christ, please stand up. And at once, Moody said, he would later, he said, 500 people stood to their feet. At first, Moody thought that all these people did not really understand what he asked them to do. 
because he had never seen that many people stand up back in America, and he didn't know what to make of it. So he told them all to sit back down. How about that? He wanted to be sure that they understood what he was saying, so he repeated the invitation and he couched it in even more difficult terms. But again, the same 500 people stood back up. Still, thinking that he was doing something wrong or that they didn't understand, Moody told to sit them, he, he said to sit down again. And then he told them that all who really wanted to accept Christ to meet the pastor of the church in the prayer room after the service was over. So the service is done, and one by one, all 500 of them file into this really small prayer room that does not have the capacity to hold 500 people. So they're setting up chairs in the back. People are overflowing into the hallways, and they all get in there, and finally Moody leads them to Christ. But then he says to them, if you are really serious, really serious about following Christ, then come back tomorrow night and meet the pastor here for teaching on how to live the Christian life. So the next day, Moody takes off for Ireland, but only a short time later, just a couple of days later in that week, he gets a frantic telegram from the pastor in that church begging him to come back because more people came on Monday than had shown up on Sunday. And so Moody comes back, and for 10 days after that, he stays, he preaches the gospel to the people, more people get saved, and he teaches them how to live the Christian life. Now let me ask, what makes the difference between an ice-cold church in the morning and a red-hot church in the evening? The biggest difference was a desperation for the power of God. The difference, at least in part, was one woman of God who pleaded for the presence of God to revive the church of God. Let me ask you, isn't that what we want? Like, don't we want to see the power and the presence of God invade our lives and our families and our church and our nation like that? Like, isn't this what makes the difference for the Israelites? Look at the passage again, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. Verse 9. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. Verse 10, I am the Lord your God. What made the difference for the Israelites was the power and the presence of God. Isn't that what makes the difference for Gideon? Verse 12, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Verse 16, and the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. Verse 18, and the angel said, I will stay till you return. What made the difference for Gideon was that the presence and the power of God was with him. And isn't that what will make the difference for us? To see the power and the presence of God at work all around us. I mean, part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the very last words that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven, he looks to the disciples and he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Like, this is what gives us courage to go. This is what gives us courage to obey God when he places a call upon our lives. Jesus is God's promise to always be with us. I mean, think for a minute, as a church of our mission, to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment, to be disciples who make disciples, to reach 120,000 people within our region with the gospel of Jesus Christ within our lifetime, to take the gospel to the nations. I mean, talk about standing in front of something that looks absolutely impossible to do. But do we not also stand with the God who does the impossible? 
Like, do we not belong to the God who parted the waters and calmed the seas and conquered the enemies and broke open prison doors when his people prayed? The God who raises the dead to life and brings revival. Is that not our God too? Like, is the God of the Bible not our God too? What about our families? Family members who don't know Christ. Spouses, children, grandchildren who desperately need to be saved. Like, they're not going to change because we convince them to change. They're going to change by the power and the presence of God upon them. Like, loved ones, we need to be praying with a spirit-injected desperation for our families, for our church, for our country, for ourselves, or else we will miss the opportunity to see the power of God at work on our behalf. We must recognize our desperation for God's power, which leads then to exhortation number two. We must risk everything for God's plan. Verse 25, God makes it clear that he will not share his glory with other gods, and so the Lord tells Gideon to go and tear down the altars to the false gods and build an altar to the Lord, So Gideon goes in the middle of the night knowing that he's going to take some heat from his family and his neighbors for doing it. And he does what God tells him to do. And for days afterward, Gideon is chased down because he took a stand and put his life on the line so that he could obey God. Like, there come times when our commitment to God can no longer stay hidden. Do we understand that? There are times when our commitment to God can no longer stay hidden. There are divinely appointed moments where we have to draw our line in the sand and maybe even stand alone when everyone else is going a different way. How's God working that out in your life? Is it sharing the gospel with someone that you care about? Telling them that there's only one God? That this God has created them in his image, but the bad news is that they've sinned against a holy God and their sin is deserving of eternal punishment in a real place called hell, but that in his grace, God gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a life that we couldn't live and to die a death that we should have died, to conquer an enemy that we could never conquer, and that if they believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins, they will be forgiven and made right with this holy God, and they will be rescued from this eternal judgment and live with God forever, and to tell them that there is no other way for this to happen, but only through believing in Jesus Christ? What I'm saying is, are we basically willing to go into the backyard of our very own culture, rip down their false gods, and tell them that there is only one way? (coughs) Maybe the issue for you is baptism. Are you willing to lay down your fear of getting wet, speaking in front of people, in in front of a room full of people, or wondering what other people are going to think about you for doing that so that you can testify to the saving grace of God within your life? Like when you know that your conviction based on the word of God is that you must be baptized and are you willing to lay down that fear so that you can follow God? Maybe God's been placing missions opportunities in front of you or, or maybe it's been questions for you of should I take this job or should I buy this house or should I marry this person or should I do this or should I do that? You can fill in the blank with the circumstance that you're going through right now and you read a story like this in Judges 6 and, and some of you are like already pulling out your phone and you're Googling where you can buy a fleece because you just want to figure out what you need to do, right? Like, 
Like, understand, Gideon's not laying down this fleece right now to try and figure out God's will for his life. God has already made it abundantly clear what he wants Gideon to do. Instead, Gideon uses the fleece to try and understand more of who God is. He's like, God, if you're calling me to do this, then give me some assurance that you're going to carry me through this. So the first time, God makes the fleece wet, which is not a huge surprise because a fleece is supposed to absorb all of the moisture, but... Even still, God gives an overwhelming sign of his power and all the ground around is, is dry and Gideon then takes the fleece and wrings out an entire bowl full of water. But the second time is more amazing because the thing that is supposed to suck up all the moisture is the one thing, the only thing, that stays completely dry and the ground all around it is wet. God is showing him that, that God has the power to help Gideon walk courageously through a circumstance that at this particular point within his life is causing him immense fear. And for us, when we need the assurance of God's presence and his power within our lives, we need only to look at the cross where Christ gave his life for us. Like There is no greater sign of God's power and there is no greater assurance of God's presence than the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. At the same time, we need to remember that, that the risk here that Gideon takes is rooted in something much deeper. Like This is not just a random risk for the sake of risk. Look again at verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon has his doubts, and God says in verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel. See, the point here is that we can step out in courageous faith, not because of who we are, and not because of who we perceive ourselves to be, but because of who God makes us to be. See, God is not calling Gideon because of who he is. He's calling Gideon, and he's about to make him into something that he is currently not. So don't forget, God does not go around looking for the strongest and the smartest and the prettiest and the wealthiest, to which I say a hearty amen to that, because if that were the case, God never would have chosen Gideon, and he never would have chosen any one of us either. Instead, God comes and he looks for the weak and the dependent and the messy and the poor in spirit and the humble and the broken. And then he does the same thing for us when we turn to him in faith that he does for Gideon in verse 34. He clothes us with his spirit and that is what makes us strong. I've said it before. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. I love how Pastor J.D. Greer says it. He says, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is having faith in God in the face of your fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is having faith in God in the face of your fear. So take that circumstance in your life. Take that whatever it is that you're going through. Pull on that thread for a little bit. Whether it's evangelism or missions or baptism or taking a job or buying a house or marrying a person or whatever it is that you're going through right now. You and I can always have the assurance of God's presence and power within our lives. The cross and the empty tomb will always be our greatest reminder of God's power and God's presence that helps us then risk everything for God's plan. Three exhortations. We must recognize our desperation for God's power. We must risk everything for God's plan. And then finally, number three, we must rejoice in God's perfect provision. 
And see, this really is where it all comes together for us. Because the pattern from which the Israelites needed to be saved is the same pattern from which we need to be saved as well. We have rebelled against God. Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We have been separated from God because of our sin. At the very least, we have given parts of our lives to the gods of the culture around us like the Israelites did in Gideon's day, and we need to be delivered. So because of our rebellion against the holy God, retribution was necessary. The difference, though, is that God, in his kindness, sent Jesus to take the full wrath of God against our sins. The command of God, then, is to repent, to turn away from our sin, to turn away from ourselves, and to turn to Christ in faith. And in that moment of repentance and faith, we are rescued by the greatest deliverer of all. We are rescued by a deliverer who is greater than Gideon and greater than every deliverer who came before and all who would come after. Jesus is our great deliverer who alone is able to rescue us from our sins and give us life forevermore. And because he is always with us and because his spirit lives within us, we can walk in courage. We can walk in obedience to God. So whatever it is that God is leading you to do, whatever it is that God is calling you to do, wherever it is that God is taking you to go and live his mission within your life, wherever it is that he has put you, we can do this, not because of our own confidence, not because of our own abilities. We do this because he is always with us. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age, Jesus says, and because his spirit lives within us, we can do what he is calling us to do, even within the face of our own fear.